When you hear that someone is missing, your mind can run wild with all of the things that could have possibly happened to them. Maybe they wanted to get away for a little while. Or maybe it's possible that something sinister happened from the person that you would never expect. Or would you? In April of 2013, Melissa Rodriguez was reported missing by her estranged husband, Jose. None of her family or friends have seen or talked to her since. A missed train, no contact from Melissa, a sabotaged investigation, and almost 10 years of no answers. Her family, police, and myself want to know. What happened to Melissa Rodriguez? I'm Kellyanne Rue, and this is Who You Let In. Collingdale is a little town in Delaware County, or Delco for short, not too far from Philadelphia. Many of the streets are lined with trees, and there are quite a few cemeteries within the town's limits. There's a few mom-and-pop pizza shops, a Wawa, and bars on just about every other corner because Delco. If you grew up in Collingdale, chances are you are still here or you moved back after having a family of your own. I grew up in a town a few miles away called Briarcliff. Some would say that they live in Glen Olden, but that would probably piss off the people that actually lived there. We only shared a post office. Two of my best friends, Jen and Christine, grew up in Collingdale, and I was over their houses all of the time. Christine actually lived across the street from Melissa on Lafayette. I would see Melissa in passing, but I was young, only 14 or 15, so I wouldn't really have any reason to talk to her besides waving or smiling at her politely when she was out front with her children. When she went missing, it was definitely the talk of the town. Things like that just didn't happen in small towns like this one. Over the years, the case grew cold and Melissa's file sat on a dusty shelf until a new set of eyes took over the case. In between that time, after years passed, nine to be exact, I often wondered if anything ever came of this case and if she was ever found. I researched what little information I could find and found a few news airings on YouTube, but that was the extent of it. I felt compelled to start this podcast to share Melissa's story and others like it with anyone who will listen, not only for her family and friends, but more importantly for Melissa. Since I didn't have much luck online, I decided to email the Collingdale Police Department to see who is handling the case now and if they would be willing to speak with me. My name is Patrick Crozier. I'm with the Collingdale Police Department for roughly 20 years. Uh, my job title now is a corporal and I handle uh, investigations for the Collingdale Police Department. Uh, with the Melissa Rodriguez case, I was not originally on the case, uh, although I did handle very few phone calls uh, in reference to that case. Uh, and since I've been in, in investigations for the last three years, the Rodriguez case was given to me as one of the cold cases. I'm hoping somebody will hear it and remember something, come forward with some information that could uh, possibly lead to the whereabouts of Melissa. I could solve the solve this case and, and close it out. Melissa Rodriguez grew up in northern New Jersey, which is about an hour and a half from Collingdale, where she ended up moving later in life with Jose. I was able to speak with a childhood friend of Melissa's who was able to give me some insight into her relationship with Melissa and what she was like as a teenager. She wished to remain anonymous, so for the sake of protecting her privacy, I will call her Maria. Melissa and I met during my sophomore year. We uh, were at Arts High, Arts High School in Newark, 
and she wore like these cool DKNY sneakers and uh, like these colorful glasses because it was um, the 90s and she'd wear her hair like in this huge bun and I just thought she had such cool style and instead of hating her like you always want to hate the ex-girlfriend I just couldn't bring myself to it because she was so sweet and bubbly and fun and outgoing that we ended up Melissa joined the Navy out of high school, but was medically discharged about two years later due to problems with her feet. It was then that Melissa had met Jose through friends. Shortly after, they began a family of their own and eventually married. After moving to Collingdale in 2007, Jose began training as a mechanic. He ended up landing a job for Amtrak, but decided the drive was too much for him. Melissa stayed with the children in Collingdale, while Jose lived in an apartment in New Jersey during the week. Family and friends describe Melissa as someone who was caring, loving, having a great personality, and a mother who would do anything for her children. They also describe her, because of how young she was when she met Jose, as a little bit naive. She, um, you know, she was very protective of Jose, you know, like nothing that he can do, you know, was wrong. We felt like he was real manipulated with her, you know, and she was naive. She's way younger than home. Not only would Melissa believe anything Jose said, she also put up with a lot of things that, in my own personal opinion, could have been seen as red flags had she not been in love with him. Melissa's family mentioned during our interviews that he had moved her away from them and she wasn't able to see them often. It was then that he started to become controlling of her. He wanted to know where she was and what she was doing at all times. He wasn't allowed to have a cell phone. He would cut the wires on her car so that she couldn't drive anywhere. He even went so far as to give her a time limit to go food shopping when he would give her money. She wasn't even allowed to have a credit card. One thing that she was allowed to have, however, was an Amtrak card. She would often use that when she traveled to visit family and friends in Newark. But whenever Jose wanted to control Melissa, he would take that Amtrak card so that she couldn't visit her family. From what I gathered, Melissa didn't tell too many people about what was going on with her and Jose. She wrote it down in a journal that she carried around with her everywhere. Supposedly, that journal contains information about her and Jose's relationship and things that he did, but I wasn't able to confirm that. Sometime in 2012, Melissa decided to visit Maria in Florida with the children. They spent their time in Disney World, cooked together, went to the beach, and just had fun enjoying each other's company. Maria mentioned that she and Melissa wanted to go out one night for drinks at a local bar. Unfortunately, Jose took Melissa's driver's license so that she didn't have the proper ID to get into any places like that. Marie explained to me how free Melissa felt while she was visiting. She didn't have to worry about doing something wrong or being confined to her house with no money or anything like that. Melissa had felt a sense of freedom and what her life could be like without being controlled all of the time. Oh, by the way, remember earlier when I mentioned that Jose had a second apartment that he stayed at during the work week? Well, it turns out he wasn't the only one living there. Yep, you heard that right. Jose had another girlfriend that Melissa didn't know about. Not only that, she was pregnant. He definitely tried to keep this a secret, but Melissa ended up finding out. I had heard a few different things about how she found out. One family member said that she was notified that a child was added to their insurance, and another said that she found out because she saw a receipt for baby formula or bottles. Either way, she found out. She definitely wasn't happy about it, and rightfully so. I mean, how would you feel if the man that you loved had a secret family and a baby on the way? When Melissa found out about Jose's affair, that is when she decided that she wanted a divorce. 
Jose, however, did not want Melissa to leave. He didn't want her to leave, you know, because, you know, he's just was a controlling individual and um, he wanted to, you know, just have control over her. And unfortunately, my niece, like I said, you know, she was uh, his, her first, you know, relationship and so she, she didn't really know that. He, he was staying, I guess, with this other, with this other young lady that he had a child with. It was later discovered that he had a child out of wedlock. After finding out about Jose's girlfriend, he and Melissa were living separately. That is, he was permanently in New Jersey and she was at the house in Collingdale. Their two daughters would spend time with Jose every other weekend, from what I gathered. Melissa would visit her friend Evie in Newark, New Jersey just about every two weeks since Jose had the girls and was supposed to visit her the weekend of April 19th. From speaking with Maria, she informed me that the week Melissa went missing, Jose had worked his way back into the house but was sleeping on the couch. It is unclear about why he was there or why he wanted to come back. From what it seems, April 19th started out just like any other day. Melissa woke up, got the girls ready for school, and dropped them off like she usually does. The only difference is that she hasn't been seen since that morning. She was supposed to visit her friend Evie in Newark, but never showed up. During my interviews, I learned that Melissa would drive her car to the train station and take the Amtrak train to Newark, where a family member or friend would pick her up. On Tuesday, April 23rd, at 9.16 in the morning, an officer from the Collingdale Police Department took a missing persons report from Jose. He told the police that Melissa had been missing since Friday, April 19th. He picked the girls up from school on Friday afternoon and brought them back to his place in New Jersey, where they stayed until he brought them back to school on Monday morning. He then told police that he did not hear from Melissa all weekend. He sent her a text message sometime on Monday asking her to call him, but she never responded. Around 4 p.m., he received a call from the girls' school informing him that no one had picked them up. While Officer Crozier told me everything he knew about this case, he just wasn't there. I needed to speak with someone who was. I wanted to know every little thing that I possibly could about this case. It's Bob Adams, ADAMS. I was hired in Collin on May 23, 1980. Started a part-time patrolman. In 1988, I became full-time. And then in 2007, I was promoted to police chief. And then in 2017, October, I retired. While I was there, the course of the while I was there, I started as a part-time patrolman, patrolman, juvenile officer, then detective sergeant, and ultimately retired as police chief. I was there a total of 38 years. We only had at each time only one, at any given time, only one detective. So for major cases, major incidences, homicides, shootings, we would call in the county detectives to assist because there was only one, there was only one person, myself. Now, it was a Monday where her husband came to the police station through one of the officers to report her missing. Hadn't heard or talked to her since Friday. Said it was very unusual. He had the kids that weekend. He spoke to her on Friday. It was his weekend with the kids. He was going to have the kids and she was going to a friend's house and that's the last they spoke. The question was raised initially, why did he wait till Monday to report her missing? And he didn't, his, his answer at the time was, he didn't really realize she was missing because it was his weekend with the kids. The one thing that, I, that distinctly I remember that just really, I just keep going over in my head is that she had no credit cards, 
no debit cards, nothing in her name. He would give her cash. The car was in his name. Something was, wasn't right. We spoke to some neighbors. They said they constantly fought. We had, I think we had a couple prior domestics there. He was very standoffish. He was very protective of the house initially. And we just, something just wasn't right with, with the entire scenario. We interviewed him. He was very standoffish, wouldn't, wouldn't really talk to us that much. And I, I specifically remember on the front lawn, Channel 6 was interviewing him with Dan Cuellar, and in the middle of the interview, he just stopped and walked away went in the house and stopped talking. So, about that news interview. Melissa Rodriguez, a 21-year-old mother of two children, was supposed to go visit a friend in North Jersey on Friday, April 19th, but she never made it. She was reported missing by her estranged husband on April 23rd, after she failed to pick up their kids from school. Back then, we asked him what was the best that he could hope for. We have our two daughters... And I just wanted to just, I don't know, uh, come back. I mean, be safe. It was mentioned multiple times by family, friends, and the police that Jose would not let Melissa have any credit cards and that she depended on him to give her money. In the past, he cut engine wires on her car so that she couldn't drive anywhere. In February of 2013, Palindale police were called to their house as Melissa was trying to leave. She had packed clothes for her and the kids in bags and was walking out the front door when Jose pushed her out of the way, tore up the bags of clothes, and threw them all over the front lawn. This same day, Melissa went to the Delaware County Courthouse to file paperwork to obtain a PFA against Jose, but she was denied. I briefly worked at the courthouse as a court clerk, so I'm pretty familiar with the PFA process and PFA hearings, but to explain it better, I spoke with former assistant district attorney Chris Boggs. Currently, I work for uh, Mark Much. Uh, we have a pretty concentrated practice, um, but we have branched out into municipal law. We represent um, some local governments. We're a special solicitor for some issues across Delaware County. Um, prior to working with Mr. Much, I was chief of the special victims unit in the DA's office for two years. Prior to that, I was on the special victims trial team in the Delaware County DA's office. And then um, I started my career in the public defender's office. So I've kind of returned to more of the defense side. But I am proud and grateful to uh, have done both sides. And it, it does help either side that you're currently on, having known how the, the other side thinks about things. The last two years that I was in the DA's office, I kind of I assigned myself PFA court. We were under the gun with a lot of the stress of COVID and whatnot. And the rest of the people on my team, I thought they were better served to have more cases. So I went to PFA court. So I made a lot of those decisions and worked with Delaware County's judges, their family court judges, um, to try to make that a, a better process. Just from the get-go, um, the 2019 numbers, because we were trying to the DA's office and the third floor, were, the judges were working together to try to create a domestic violence court, which would have a special judge, it would have a special DA, it would have a special public defender, the defense bar would be um, a part of that, and it would just train probation officers so that everybody would kind of understand the, the cycle of domestic violence that would always kind of be on the judge's mind, the defense's mind, the prosecution's mind, and you wouldn't have to constantly educate the system every time you have one of these cases. So in that process, we got the numbers from 2019 28% of all PFAs that are applied for get a final order. 
So that means that 72% of all PFAs that come before a judge are denied. They are not given. Why is that? The skeptic in me would say that that shows you how much the system is abused. Now, from being in PFA court, you are, as a prosecutor, you are constantly looking for Ted Bundy. That's where he is. However, normal people going through divorces are also scattered around him, and they all look the same. And the system is, I believe, constantly abused. The When you have people going through a divorce, it doesn't matter if it's the man or the woman, if there is a PFA against one of the parties, the other party gets exclusive control of the property and of the children. It is a huge leg up in divorces. So therefore, a lot of these things are filed and a lot of them are denied. So this puts a huge stress on prosecutors and judges who are constantly and feverishly looking for Ted Bundy amongst people that are you know, just going through divorces. So why a PFA would be granted or denied is more specifically for um, judges because they are the ones that have the ex parte hearings. They, once someone files with the court, they file for an emergency PFA, they get taken before a judge, and that judge hears only one side of the story. They then will either grant or deny a temporary PFA. If it is denied, it ends there. If there's a temporary granted, then it's basically like having one until you can have a hearing. And then at that hearing, a judge would hear from both sides and then determine whether or not someone is truly in fear and whether or not this other person um, is true poses a danger to this person. You also have to have a relationship. You can't just be neighbors. It has to be an intimate relationship or a familiar relationship. I think that's not really relevant to you in, in what you're looking at. It was a domestic violence situation that you're dealing with. But what you're, what you're looking at is, is really those, those hearings in front of judges where only 28% result in a final order. Now, in addition to my skepticism, what probably also is pervasive in the system is plaintiffs that don't show up. Um, As I'm sure you're seeing and researching the domestic violence cycle, people forgive their abuser a lot, or they are incredibly terrified of their abuser. So while in that moment where they're trying to survive and they reach out to the police and the police come or they, they help them file, um, fill out a PFA application, um, or a family member helps in that moment of crisis. But then, it, but then you know, a week later, a month later, um, things get continued. As you know, in the criminal justice system, these processes take a long time. And sometimes right away, the person is back with the defendant or is terrified of the defendant and never wants to go and publicly make a statement against them in court. Um, so if they don't show up, the case has to be dismissed, even if the defendant, if we didn't catch him, but if the defendant um, scared the, the victim into not coming, that still would not result in a final order. This case is is your Ted Bundy case. That's, that's the guy that we're looking for. He said it perfectly. This case is the Ted Bundy case. Chris also mentioned that sometimes the abuser is forgiven or if they are a couple, they may get back together. According to the affidavit, 
Melissa informed one of her friends that Jose was being really nice to her, so she allowed him back into the home. And just to remind you, this was a week before she went missing. Here is Melissa's friend, Evie. I met Jose. I mean, he, he came here one time to pick her up, a couple of times to pick her up with the kids. It was okay. Well, Jose barely gave her any money. Jose is the one who controlled everything. Mm-hmm. Because one time she was seeing she, her arm was bruised. And I asked her, what happened to your arm? And she said, oh, me and Jose had a fight. You know, we argued. I was trying to walk away. And he grabbed my arm. I said, but that's a bruise. Well, what the hell? Like, you know, and she was like, yeah, but it's okay. We're okay now. But Melissa used to come here. Used to come here. And he used to go visit his father. She would drop her, her and the kids here. His father lived not too far away from me. So I, I know Jose. I, we have spoken. I went to a book party, a book party. He was there with her, you know, like a family. He was, he was a normal guy, except one day she was here. We went... Where did we go? It was me and my friend that had company. It was just a bunch of girls. So I don't remember. I, all I know is that we ended up at, her, at, at, his, at her, um, his father's house. And that's when I saw him. He was aggressive because he she was going to get back in the car with us. And she said, if you get back into the car, you'll see what's going to happen. So one of my friends was like, wait a minute. Is he threatening her? So just to recap. Melissa dropped the girls off at school on Friday morning, April 19th. She was supposed to head to Newark to visit Evie for the weekend, but never made it. Jose dropped the girls off at school on Monday morning and received a phone call around 4 p.m. that the girls weren't picked up from school. The next morning, on Tuesday, April 23rd, Jose called the police to report Melissa missing. Do you guys want to hear something crazy? Two whole days before Jose reported Melissa missing, he showed up to work unannounced. Why did he do that, you ask? I'll tell you. Police found a receipt for merchandise that was charged out by Jose on April 21st. These items were two mop heads and a gallon of industrial strength cleaner. I was like, why? What for? Why did he load it up? Nobody's saying, pointing fingers at him at all. That's called guilt. That's next time on Who You Let In. Who You Let In is researched, written, recorded, and edited by me. The theme song was chosen from Offbeat and is called Travel in the Ocean. Sources and citations are included in the show notes. Until next time.
Oh, are you guys still listening? Cool. You can listen to me tell this corny joke to my children. What did the janitor say when he jumped out of the closet? I could say something really funny right now, but it will ruin your thing. Supplies! <laughs> so stupid. <laughs>